Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. This is Mattachine, a queer serial, a very special bonus episode, an interview with Randy Wicker of the Mattachine Society. And then I got sober, and then I was living in a program, a drug and alcohol program for eight and a half years. Mm. Came like uh, a counselor and stuff, and then he says, okay. And I, did, I was sick at that place, and then he, you, you can sleep on my couch, so now I'm back. What a good friend. I used to have a be- yeah, great friend. Randy Wicker is a crusader. That's the word I seem to always see associated with his name. From the book he had published with K. Tobin Lehusen, The Gay Crusaders, to the title of the chapter about him in Eric Cervini's new book, The Deviant's War. Throughout all of his many stories in the movement, Randy Wicker has had help from friends. Some of them you've maybe never heard of, others are icons of the movement. Randy has been active in the gay movement since the late 1950s, as we've heard in previous episodes of the podcast. He pushed the homophile activists of the Mattachine pretty hard. He spoke so frankly about homosexuality on the radio in 1962 that one magazine wrote, No homosexual, no matter how well-trained, should ever allow himself to speak extemporaneously upon the subject. The Daughters of Belitis wrote in the latter, We must ask ourselves, is this crusade an upstaging of the more conservative homophile organizations? What is our answer to Randolph Wicker's truth-telling campaign? But throughout Randy's storied history of pushing the envelope in his activism, there are also moments that seem wildly out of character for him. For instance, when researching his writing for the Mattachine Review, I was surprised to read that he said there was no excuse for deliberately offensive behavior like the inflection of voice, mincing steps, and broken wrists of feminine gaze. This was not the person I knew of as Marsha P. Johnson's roommate, and this was not his only position that I had noticed change over time. Over the course of several hours of chatting, it became clear that his lifetime of many friendships have influenced his thinking in his crusades. His activism has also nurtured those friendships. It's so rare that we hear someone say that they were wrong, that they've changed their mind. And I had planned on asking Randy more about his awareness of these changes, but nearly every story he told me expressed that ability. A moment he felt so right and then had his mind changed. And then he not only accepted his error, but he made it part of his activism. Had I only read his 1958 essay for the Mattachine Review titled The Homosexual Swish, I might have wondered if I had the wrong apartment when I rang the bell on a door decorated with not just a rainbow flag, but also an intersex rights sticker and a portrait of Sylvia Rivera, among a lot of other decorations. Music was blasting inside, and eventually the door opened. Randy's roommate Michael showed me in, pushing the door open to reveal a huge lit-up painting of Marsha P. Johnson. We're in Hoboken, New Jersey, January 16th, 2020, Randy has lived here about 40 years, nearly half of his life, and his decorations tell that story. Photos are all over the walls. Marsha, Sylvia, Harry Hay, Jack Nichols, and plenty of people I don't recognize. Michael shows me around the apartment while Randy is in the next room getting ready. There's a huge bouquet of flowers with a sign in it that says in caps, SHUT DOWN MACHISMO. Trans rights flags on the walls, a signed photo of the Mattachine sip-in, buttons everywhere, all kinds of buttons. Randy ran a well-known button store called Underground Uplift Unlimited. 
But if you're totally new to his work and you've only learned about him from this podcast, then you know of him as a former Mattachine member. I'm very well known because I'm the, the last real still active pre-Stonewall activist. He left the Mattachine Society in order to start his own organization, the Homosexual League of New York. And he put a group of homosexuals on the radio in 1962. Could you, um, or would you mind telling us what you do, all of you? I mean, what you do in a business sense. Could we just go around and each one of you tell us what you do? Make uh, a living? I'm a salesman. I'm an electronics technician. Electronics technician. Electronics technician? Right, yeah. I'm engaged in uh, technical professions. I work in a nursery in Jersey. I'm a corresponding secretary. I'm a sportswear designer. And I'm a, an artist and designer. Well, we have a fairly representative uh, group of the professions that the heterosexual world espouses, uh, in a sense, don't we? So this is where the problem arises, that in a sense, your interests in the commercial world, in the world of business, uh, are not demonstrably different than anybody else's interests. Is this correct? I Right. I would say generally so, but there are, when you get into this idea, those people that need to associate with other homosexuals, you'll find that there are people that tend to go, I feel, into things such as hairdressing and interior decoration because either through uh, social conditioning they're effeminate and they don't fit in any group except a totally homosexual group, and to that extent they do uh, tend to collect in one profession, but you'll find homosexuals in every walk of life. The salesman is Randy Wicker. That clip is from Live and Let Live, which you'll hear more from soon. As you might recall from episode six of the podcast this season, Randy had recently left the University of Texas, where he was a student activist by the name of Charles Hayden. Charles organized a march against rising tuition prices, which was successful, despite a few boys throwing him in a fountain at the end. He got out of the fountain, dripping wet in his suit, declaring, we'd come for a riot and now we've had one, and everyone laughed tuition prices did not rise. A student publication wrote, Is Hayden a sincerely idealistic reformer, or mainly a rabble-rouser out to raise hell and make a name for himself? Shortly after, Charles put together a survey of homosexuals with his friend Ron Argall and mailed it out using the Mattachine subscription list. They called their project Wicker Research Studies, which would become his name in activism. Despite almost getting kicked out of school for being gay, he graduated and returned to New York City, through these early experiences, Charles learned the power of PR, the power of putting your name out there to make change by simply getting the attention of the media. And at his father's request, Charles Hayden Jr. changed his name to Randolph Wicker. He became his pseudonym. Everyone calls him Randy now. Is that really your name? Devlin Camp, that's my name. CMP? Yeah. Yes, it is my real name. I'm practically gay by definition. Oh, you must have gotten a rather rousing about you know, that. The Devlin kids didn't know that Camp, Camp met gay. They had no. It's a Sontag, Yeah, I was going to say Sontag. That's how I learned about right. it. I didn't know until I was well, in high school. I'd like to be broad enough to ask each person here to uh, give a little bit of background insofar as when they first knew. For instance, I didn't, I knew what I was. In other words, I knew I was attracted to other males, and the way I found out that I was a queer was I heard two friends telling jokes about queers. And I re registered mentally, well, that's me you're talking about. And, <laughs> How and old were you, Ray? I was only uh, 14 years old. I've always, but there are other people, and one or two are sitting here, I think, that didn't know until their early 20s that all of a sudden, like, uh, just boom. 
They realized that there had been something in themselves that they'd never realized before. This could happen through having one experience, what you call a casual relationship, or it could happen very slowly over a period of time. Randy was 24 when he recorded Live and Let Live for WBAI. The New York Times called the program the most extensive consideration of the subject to be heard on American radio. Newsweek, The Realist, The New York Herald Tribune, and Variety all covered it favorably. And mainstream attention on homosexual issues was extremely rare. And I said, hello, I'm uh, Randy Wicker from the Homosexual League of New York, and I'd like to talk to you about making homosexuality a legitimate political and social issue on our day. And even in the dim light, you could see them go white. I'm not kidding you. There were 23 people, and I stood in the middle of the room, and they stood in the corners. And the only person that He had recently launched that group, the Homosexual League of New York, which most history books describe as a one-man league, but you will hear him correct that myth today. His story spans much longer than these early years of pushing the Mattachine's buttons and stepping out on his own in activism. And we'll hear some of these stories in the upcoming episodes of the podcast, like the Whitehall Army Induction Center picket, the Sip-In, Underground Uplift Unlimited, a popular Greenwich Village store he ran during the 1960s button craze, the dance at the Electric Circus shortly after the Stonewall Riots, friendship with Marsha P. Johnson, enemies with Sylvia Rivera, and then later friends. I've known Sylvia informally, you might say, since 1969-1970, the Gay Activist Alliance. We were arch enemies for the first 22 years of the 32 years we knew one another. And that is story which I think is so remarkable. The person that I used to consider a very arch enemy or moral political enemy, someone I had no use for whatsoever, ended up becoming one of my best friends in life and literally came in here and ran my business and became one of the most special, wonderful, incredible people I ever knew. How many people have one of their worst enemies or oldest enemy become one of their best friends and saviors? Both trans activists lived with Randy in this apartment. Their photos are also all over the walls. Oh, here's Marsha right here, too, Marsha and Sylvia. These are really mm-hmm. two good, it's a good picture of Marsha right here without, with, without drag. Sylvia. I never met Marsha, but I met Sylvia. Sylvia is wonderful. And then this is Marsha and drag right here. This is Randy right here. And there was, this was Prescott himself. This is what he looked mm-hmm. like. I've never seen a photo of him. That's one of the few existing ones. This is P- Prescott repairing a bed spring or something. And it was here that I met the first parents of a gay person who was positive about there being open, uh, you know. This isn't you, is it? Sitting here? Or are you no, taking the no, I'm not here, but here I am. This is me with my first lover in Coney Island with Jack Nichols and his first lover, Lodge Clark, who wrote the... Uh, yeah, this is an incredible photo. Where is this? That is in Coney Island. Got a thousand pictures. And here I am with my first lover is Batman and Robin. Oh my always, god, that's always adorable. My fantasy. I had this now he lives with Michael, who you heard at the top of the episode. Yeah, great friend. You'll hear him occasionally in the background, adding stories and kindly cooking dinner for us, which I didn't expect at all. He's a fabulous host. He just brought us dinner. After they show me around, we sit. Randy is by the window by a large photo of Rene Cafiero at the first picket for gay rights. I'm sitting on the couch where so many of Randy's friends have crashed for years. Randy's energy is relentless from the start. You prompt him once and he has a list of stories to tell. He had stories to tell before I even asked a question. I asked my first planned question about an hour and a half into the interview. I tend to be aggressive and I tend to talk too much. And if you're looking at the two hour episode length, just know I edited down from nearly five hours. We had a great time. I wish I could include it all. He's forthcoming about when he was wronged. 
he admits to having been transphobic in the past. And he struggled with masculinity. There are times that I've been wrong, but that's something else that people never admit. I never heard of Weekstock before RuPaul mentioned Marsha yeah. in the in the ceremony at Weekstock that year. And uh, I said, uh, I stand corrected. You are right and I am wrong. There are six, wor six words that people never bring themselves to say. But anyway, I really have, when I look at my life, I was destroyed by that whole machismo thing because it made me very selfish and I found I could get away with it. He later explained to me that he learned a lot from Jack Nichols, who worked alongside Frank Kameny in the Mattachine Society of Washington. In 1975, Jack Nichols wrote a book called Men's Liberation about the myths of masculinity and how machismo hurts our relationships. Randy told me a story about Jack and his longtime lover, Lige Clark, being interviewed on the radio for this book. Jack was asked what the equivalent of burning bras would be for male liberation. Jack said, cutting up a credit card. But Randy was also ahead of his time in some ways with his thoughts about masculinity, specifically in his opinion about what many of us would now refer to as mask for mask. Here's what he said in Live and Let Live in 1962. There is a type of homosexual who gets hung up on the idea that, boy, the more masculine, the more attractive. And he starts out chasing masculine homosexuals, and then he gets completely fixated on this idea of what you call rough trade. And these people follow the gamut. Now, they might all gather on 42nd Street or 3rd Avenue, but this is just simply an official meeting place. This doesn't mean that those people that pick them up on 3rd Avenue live near 3rd Avenue. They might live in the Bowery or in Brooklyn. Randy's energy has always been relentless. As a businessman and as an activist, he even has expanded his activism outside of queer issues, which is where we start. I got tired of the gay movement by about the mid-60s, although I was elected secretary in Mattachine in 1965, mm -hmm. New York chapter. Mm -hmm. And when my friend's girlfriend almost died having a miscarriage because they couldn't get a legal abortion, they used quinine pills to endorse a miscarriage, mm -hmm. which she almost died from. And he met the parents of the woman he lived with for two or three years over the bed in Bellevue where she had nearly died miscarrying the pregnancy he had induced. At that point, I said to myself, my God, society isn't just all screwed up about homosexuality. It's screwed up about sex in general. Yeah. So I went to the Sex Freedom League so we could pick it for legalized abortion and conjugal rights for prisoners and, and against the New York Public Library having certain literature restricted. A censored book is a, is a you know, a Censorship is a little censorship is like a little pregnancy, is what one of the girls carried <laughs> that's on. That's a great side. sign. Yes. Oh, yes. that's fantastic. And so I went on then to the same person. He turned me on the pot back in Texas, and I always sort of enjoyed it. Well, then I got caught up in the Sex Freedom League. We went into Lemar. Mm -hmm. And Lemar made me the first editor of the marijuana newsletter. So my name is the first one listed along with Ed Sanders, Mike, uh, Allen Ginsberg, Peter Olofsky, and uh, um, Burroughs, I think. So anyway, then I went on to the anti-war movement was starting. Mm -hmm. I marched in the first anti-war march, which Time Magazine, I vividly remember in 1964 or something, said, a bunch of misfits marched up Fifth Avenue protesting the war in Vietnam that public opinion surveys show uh, 95 percent of the public supports mm. you know and i remember there was a group of vfw veterans there how many of them are we gonna kill we're gonna kill all of them 
So that was what they were chanting. That was one of the few times that I immediately, I came up with a chant in my head saying, we won't kill, we won't kill, which the whole crowd picked up. But the crowd was only a few thousand. Of course, as time evolved, it was a, uh, um, it turned out that I was right. There are, are, all you, are any of you are veterans of the Army, for example? I'm veterans or have been in the Army? Why don't we go around this way? I'm 4F for being homosexual. I managed to convince the psychiatrist that I was. A great number Me of people too. try try to convince the psychiatrist that they're homosexual, and he says, oh, come on, now you're kidding me, and drafts them, and two years later they might find out they're homosexual and get a dishonorable discharge. Well, I was in the Navy, and I felt that, well, at the time, I, I knew that I was homosexual, and I, I resented it, because it automatically made me different, and I didn't want to be any more different than I already was. And I went into the Navy with the idea that somehow I might be, the term I used then was cured, and I understand now the better term might be adjustment. But I felt even though I did have, uh, you know, I was... I was homosexually inclined, I didn't feel that this, you know, should, you know, keep me from going into uh, the Navy. And I did, and I didn't have any difficulty. Let's go to Jim next. Well, I, uh, uh, like you, I, uh, I told him I uh, was a homosexual, and I decided to face up with it, to it rather than get into a mess once I got in. <laughs> and Peter? You too. Well, uh, the homosexual, uh, I'm 21 years of age, I haven't been in. Uh, the homosexuality doesn't enter into it in my case because I'm an absolutist pacifist and I don't even uh, acknowledge draft boards as being valid. Bob, are you intended to Oh, I'm young, but I think most homosexuals tend to avoid the service. They, uh, they prefer not to, to go into it. What would, what would he do? Uh, that, that uh, I have been in the services and uh, I think perhaps uh, one of the reasons I went into the services was develop, to develop my masculine side. and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, basically, it's, I associate it as a masculine trait, and uh, being bisexual, I uh, surely didn't want to anyone side to get a hold of me. Uh, Marty? Well, I enlisted when I was 19 for the primary purpose of getting away from the family. <laughs> and uh, the fact, the idea of being a homosexual wasn't a particular problem because I hadn't really come out at that time. And uh, so it was rather four years of hard work. And Bill? I declared myself. We don't get the harassment, incidentally, that, that uh, other groups who, who may be heterosexual or homosexual get. For example, Puerto Rican groups in the Upper East Side who are beaten nearly to death by policemen rather often, and nothing is ever said about it in the papers, nobody ever raises a clamor. These people uh, are ostracized for reasons uh, which are even more incom incomprehensible to me than, than the homosexual. And archives have been reluctant to include one part of Randy's activist biography. The guy from the Smithsonian was not the least bit interested in any way. And I said, none of the colony stuff? He said, no. I could tell he was just instinctively anti-colonial, right? Mm. And I said to him, I said, look, I said, you don't understand. When the first child is conceived through cloning, I am suddenly going to be of great interest to the whole world. Today, we won't be focusing on his cloning activism. Sorry, Randy. But clearly, it is one of his many passions as an activist. Work that began in his 20s, which led him to join the Mattachine Society. Well, we're all here together. And, uh, of course, we simply want to ask some rather obvious questions of all of you and to get your most 
candid replies to that. So why don't we begin at the beginning with a with an obvious an obvious question. What is the Mattachine Society? Mattachine Society is the oldest uh, educational research organization concerned with homosexuality. Unfortunately, while it's attained respect in professional circles, its memberships remain 98% homosexual. Now, uh, this in itself was a bit of a revelation to me that there was a kind of a, an organization concerned with this. And I was just wondering uh, how closely do homosexuals identify with the aims of the Mattachine Society? Uh, in other words, uh, we have what might be considered a representative group here. Are, are all of you do, you, do you feel some kind of group identity? Actually, let me interrupt. How many people here have heard of the Mattachine Society? I have. Uh, everyone's heard of it. How many people are really familiar with this program? Anyone? I'm not. Nope. I'm the only one. Well, I guess that answers that question. <laughs> but I had discovered only this past year that the police department in New York City had had spies on Mattachine. They had police officers to Mattachine meetings. Mm -hmm. And the guy was a police reporter. He said they just released the archives before 1970. And he said, I kept reading, they talked about who spoke and what they said. And then at the end of the event, they would say no action was taken. And I could tell by the guy's kind of mentality that he seemed to me to be a hard-nosed, right-wing. I really got the feeling he was really a law and order. He wasn't a get in any way LGBT sensitive, yeah. let's put it that way. Yeah. And then I read the article when he, it came out, and I realized suddenly, I said, why would they? They're despite a Mattachine. Mattachine would have doctors or lawyers come and talk about, you know, or theologians, are we sinners, aren't we sinners? You know, all these doctors, why are you gay? All these all these people. And it was almost like it was the most innocent thing in the world. So I realized the police department must have thought that a Mattachine society was a cover for a monthly orgy or something. That's why no action was taken. They must have thought something illegal. You have like 50 or 100 homosexuals coming That's where together. That's to be doing. Coming, yeah. Even though they're coming together in Freedom House, which is a well-known public hall up there right opposite Bryant Park, uh -huh. and no action was taken. Mm -hmm. It started when I joined um, Manishing. Actually, that, that, that's, a fun, that's a fun thing that's going to come out next. I got involved in Manishing in the summer of 1958 promoted a talk they were having. 300 people instead of the usual 30 showed up. Most of them women wearing bobby socks that were students or something. Got Mattachine evicted from their site at 6th Avenue and 48th Street. They moved down to 1133 Broadway. Mm -hmm. And so this was the vision and the movement. The, the liberals said, this is what we wanted to reach people and change attitudes. The conservatives said, that guy's no end of trouble. He got us evicted from the headquarters. We'd slaved away converting into a meeting hall. Well, anyway, from there, I went to the University of Texas, got involved with sit-ins for civil rights, and also got involved in student politics. There's a book coming out next spring on Frank Kameny. But then they, use, they have a chapter about me that runs about 10 or 15. It was a pretty long chapter, mm -hmm. which they call me. They said, Randy Wicker lived for sex and power, had two drives for sex and power, so in the summer of 1959, he went to Hollywood, 
and decided that instead of working at a doll department store job or something, he would he would resort to being a hooker on Hollywood Boulevard. And the way they made it sound was so funny because the way they described it is after eight weeks of of running eyes, that's where your, your eyes ran from pollution in those mm-hmm. days, yeah. and when stood up his nose, he decided to return to the University of Texas to give up the as a sex worker as a sex worker, returned to the University of Texas to pursue power, and then described how I went on to almost get elected as president of the student body of the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. And it was so charming. Of course, the thing was that he made it sound like I was seriously considering what it is. I lived, I went there, met this boy, he said I could stay with him, so I had a place to stay. All I really needed every day was 65 cents for a lunch and 50 cents for a cup of coffee at this all-night cafe down at the end of Hollywood Boulevard where all these absolutely beautiful little queens, all of whom were hustling, star-filled, beautiful, lovely, fabulous people. Uh, And I had such interesting adventures that summer. I say I learned more in those eight weeks hustling than I learned the next year at the University of Texas. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But... um, uh, it wasn't an alternate career. It was that I really wanted to hang out. And I, I remember one boy I had a, a, a fairly long relationship with that summer. His mother had been a prostitute, and she had died at 42. And he was so proud that the coroner thought she was only 28. Oh. And, I mean, I've often thought of those the people that I knew. And I remember going to a swimming pool. And here were these beautiful boys swimming around and these ugly ogres to me. There must have been men in their 30s or 40s. Ancient, ancient old men, you know, with these poor, captive little little children. They're all legal age, of course, but still, you know. But I was among them. They, but I really, what I found with hustling, the only hustler that I ever saw that I realized what about hustling, first of it made it possible for me to go to work the rest of my life from nine to five yeah. at any snotty job because hustling is death by a thousand cuts. I believe in legalized hustling. I think it's the last honest act when you give people access to your body for money. What more can you do after that except rob or deal drugs or something really bad? Uh, so I support hustling, but I discourage people from any kind of career in prostitution. There are all types of patterns of people that go to the village. There are some people that look down on homosexuals that go to homosexual bars. And the people that go to homosexual bars look down on those people that follow devious practices of walking along the waterfront and knocking on truck driver cabs and climbing in with the truck drivers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that's right. And the east side phonies look down on everybody. Yeah. And the point I'm making is that there are a thousand different little patterns of living. There are people. So what you're saying too is that homosexuals resent difference as much as heterosexuals do. Perhaps you'll answer a kind of a a bigotry of my own. I've always uh, assumed that uh, a large portion of the life of the homosexual was concerned with uh, seduction and therefore that his business activities (laughs) were somewhat directed by this as well. Is this at all? I disagree. (laughs) I I disagree. I think we'd all rather be seduced than seduced. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, strange as it may seem, uh, I would say, you know, generally the homosexual has a very strong moral fiber and a very definite set of rules and uh, from which he rarely breaks and won't digress. Let me ask you a question to return for a second to what you said, which I found interesting, and I, I sort of 
wanted to pursue a little further. You said that homosexuals are, as you use the word moral, they have a stronger moral code as anybody else. I would like to, to develop this a little further. Is uh, promiscuity uh, more prevalent among homosexuals than in heterosexual society? Yes. Yes. But the why is also very important, I feel. What, what's, how would you explain the why? Well, because uh, I said the, uh, the inability to sustain a relationship, you know, two males living together with this, you know, well, this romantic aspect that really doesn't exist in heterosexual relationship, but inevitably all relationships go, even, you know, the ones that are based on something which is sort of what they consider solid at the outset. So promiscuity has to come in, you know, in the window. Uh, but anyway, uh, what I did did learn from, oh, I, I remember meeting Roth was his name. It was a German name, Roth. That's the way they said it, right? Mm -hmm. He was this incredible, like, beautiful blonde-haired beauty, just like something out of, out of any kind of a muscle magazine you would pick. He was about eight, 18, 19, 20 years old. He came in. I'd been taken home by this guy, this sweet-talking French guy, and he had come to Hollywood with this German guy, and they had brought over Roth with him. And Rolf had gone down to the Hollywood Boulevard to get something, and he was gone for 20 minutes. They wanted to know why it took him so long <laughs> to run down the house. I mean, talk about keeping a dog on the leash. Yeah. Like, you're not going to get out of my sight for a minute. Oh, I thought, it was, what a nightmare. Yeah. To be in America, to be on Hollywood Boulevard, you've got to rush back to these two old trolls that are waiting for you back at the hotel room or whatever. So that, and the only story I know of a hooker, whoever really made out, was when Willie ended up being manager of the gate. He ran the box office. The only person there to go off of the stage into running the box office. There was a, a dancer there named George who had met this older man who was about 78 or 79 years old. And he left, he left dancing at the gate to go down and live in Pennsylvania with some older man. And a couple years later, a few years later, maybe three or four years later, I found out the old man had died and left him the farm that was worth a couple million dollars. That is the only success story that I know of that I can tell you about a male husker, believe me. All the others, including one who died just recently, came to work for me uh, at around the age of 18. She had just begun transitioning, and she told me that at first that she was trans, but also that she had dreamed of being, she had read the Happy Hooker, a book, at the age of 12, decided she wanted to be a high-paid prostitute. And she started transitioning, but what happened is it turned out she was HIV positive, and she started making a lot of money as a so-called chick with a dick. They used to have that category in ads and the village voice and everything. Mm -hmm. She would come in the store with rolls of, like, $100 bills. So what became of... of you and Ron, once you went to Texas, and he went to well, San Francisco, Well, he, he right? was living in a trailer, I remember, behind his parents' home. Mm. He was very poor, and he was, he was, he must have been, was he president of Manichean Society in L.A. at that time? I, I think so, and then at some point he went to San Francisco, and he was writing you letters about Hal Call. Right. Um, and there was some sort of plan about, you collaborated to get a mailing list from Manichean to send out a study. Uh, right. To figure out what... Yes, and, and this is the story of Wicker Research Studies, which is misrepresented 
It's misrepresented of all places in the ceremony inducting me into the Hall of Fame, the Professional Lesbian and Gay Journalist Hall of Fame in 2012. I have it on uh, on my series of gay historic videos. I have about a yeah. hundred of them, you know. What did they get wrong? Well, this is the way it happened. It was the first time they were included in this multimedia event where they had the, the Spanish the Spanish media, the African-American media, for the first time LGBT journalists were included. They sent me this description. They said, Dear Mr. Wicker, this is our understanding of your involvement. And it said that I had the Wicker Research Studies, and they made it sound like I was an open gay activist during the Wicker Research Studies at University of Texas in 1958. The fact of the matter was, I mean, in 1958-59, the fact of the matter was, I was doing the Wicker research studies, <clears throat> giving these law shock tests and these questionnaires, which had such questions like, what service did you prefer? Where you ask questions such as, do you believe in God? Do you belong to a church? Do you like sports? Would you want your son to be homosexual on down? Do you prefer the, which branch of the do service you? do you prefer? Do you like Tulula Bankhead and Jane Mansfield? <laughs> and in the religious part of this questionnaire, out of 300 homosexuals polled, 90% believed in God and 60% belonged to churches. Now, the national statistics on this are that 90% of the people believe in God and 60% belong to churches. Now, I don't know how they do it, but it seems like the homosexual's religious viewpoint is not particularly changed any more than, I guess, the suburbanite. I think that there's just a general hypocrisy in our culture about religion today. You don't practice what you preach. You just go on Sunday as a social event and listen to the preacher and... That's the extent of it. I remember two or three questions were very interesting. Of course, the Navy was the overwhelming preference among the services. About 60% wanted to join the Navy. Yeah. But the most interesting question was, would you want your child to be a homosexual? And 80... Majority... I think it was 60, 70, or maybe even 80% said no. Another 18% said they would leave it up to the child. It would be up to the child. And only 2% said they would like for their child to be gay. I was among those 2%. That 92% that believed in God. Something like 92% or 90% believed in God. 60% attended church on a regular basis. They were exact. You know how it's so funny because the truth of my story is that we made the argument publicly as Mattachine, which I thought was a little bit propagandish, that the gay community was really not that much different from the straight community. And a lot of homosexuals are guilt-laden. In other words, you're saying that homosexuals are as Babbitt-prone as anybody else. In other words, they're all just a bunch of Babbitts, like, or not all, but let's say... And I would tell people that I would think sometimes that homosexuals were kind of a superior group until I'd meet some incredibly stupid I'm constantly shocked by dumb gay people we should be better right we are often right. not well let me ask you all specifically then let's put it this way how many of you find that your social lives of that matter your business lives are exclusively uh, devoted to the company of other homosexuals uh, Jack would you like to talk about that well, I, I was uh, just thinking, I myself generally, you know, 
stick with the social group that is primarily homosexual. But that I don't think it's because uh, I'm afraid of a, of a heterosexual society. It's simply that, generally, unless uh, you know, you do make friends, who say, in the office with people that you admire and respect. Generally, you, you will occasionally, you will have dinner, you will have them buy for drinks. But generally, well, I find that there's something lacking, in a, you know, in that relationship that you probably, unless they're especially cultivated people, they're usually dull and they're not up on, you know, mm -hmm. on most of the things that... Uh, you would like them to be. Well, in, in heterosexual society, uh, Freud aside for a moment, I mean, many people form relationships and associations which have very little to do with sexuality. Uh, is this true in homosexual society as well? Bill? Oh, yeah. Uh, most of my friends, for instance, I, I don't think I would be interested in having an affair with. They're just people that I like in general. Then why is it that uh, you say that uh, you find them dull? I um, didn't say I uh, found them dull. Jack. Jack. And, uh, <coughs> well, that, that's highly subjective, and I'm sure everybody around here can, you know, oppose that violently. But uh, as I said before, there, if you know cultivated people, then, you know, it's very well and good. But generally, uh, I would say for myself, most of the people that I have known, you know, they don't offer enough, you know, to sustain a relationship for me. Was he doing Wicker Research Studies with you? You know, the whole thing with Wicker Research Studies is I did these, these studies, uh -huh. but it was all on the QT, and I had people mailing in stuff from Denver, and I did some compilations. Mm. But when things started getting hot for me at the University of Texas, I had a mammoth bonfire on the outskirts of, of, of Austin destroying anything relating to homosexuality in my room. Oh, wow. Because I said, my God, I can't have anything at all relating to homosexuality in my room. So I burned all my Wicker Research study files and everything because I was, I knew that if I was called into the office, I mean, I, there was a couple there. One was in the Air Force, the other was a, a student. He went in and they had, they were a couple, and one thing about Austin in those days, it was 100, 200,000 people, 100,000, I believe. There were only three or four gay bars. So if you went into a gay bar, oh, people goodness. would say, where's your lover, you know, X, Y, or Z? And, uh... Oh, thank you, Michael. You're welcome. My goodness. Let me get extra sauce for Randy, because I know he Michael is such a sweetheart. He's constantly taking care of Randy. I think this would be interesting to know uh, before we get into too much of a self-incriminating discussion of promiscuity. <laughs> what has been the longest, uh, re generally the age of each of the each of us here, and what's been their longest relationship, if they've ever had any type of a relationship with someone? Yeah, could we go around it? Why don't we do that? I've I've always avoided marriage, women or male. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 25, and my longest out of two was six months. I'm uh, 27, and uh, no. I'm 21, that's four and a half months. Yeah, I'm 21, and I made seven months. <laughs> I'm 27, and my longest uh, affair was a year. I'm 26, and it was about seven and a half years. <laughs> Let me ask you this, then. Uh, Seven and a half years is a fairly long time. Is that one still 
in existence? No, it isn't. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that the reality was the real argument in the beginning of the gay movement was a, an argument, I remember back in the early 70s, they did not want, <clears throat> when they had the, the demonstration at the Marriage Bureau, when they took it over to throw a wedding for two gay couples in 1971 that I filmed, mm -hmm. In the beginning of that, I have the uh, the whole thing. It was a whole hour. I cut it down to three ten-minute segments. But Mark Rubin was saying we don't want to get into the issue of gay marriage because in those days, the gay activists were saying we don't want to be cookie-cutter heterosexuals. We want to create our own institutions. We want to create our own society. Mm -hmm. You know, we're separate. Uh, well, presumably, you know, the standard kind of cliche about this is that... Uh not about homosexual, but about all love, you know, that if this is perfectly uh, agreeable, then everything else is perfectly agreeable. You know, if the sex is going well, then everything else is going well. One would, this is the kind of, the kind of ultimate of the, of the Freudian view of human nature. I was just wondering whether this is really the, the truth. I mean, have any of you found that, to, for example, you were perfectly mated from a sexual point of view, but the, the person might have been an absolute boor or uh, vulgar or any of the other reasons why somebody might uh, find that a relationship wasn't possible? Well, I usually find that love affairs are really not based on sex too much. It does play an important role, but it seems to be very much the person, uh, what they have to offer. I'd say on, on those lines, too, that you don't really, and I think this is true of heterosexuals or homosexuals, that until you live with somebody, uh, just one, I have a friend who's an older person that's been going with someone quite a long time, and he has a, a very low opinion of heterosexual marriage, because he says, just think if you find the perfect girl, and then there's one thing wrong with her, she turns out to be a social climber. And this is so true. One little thing, in a, when you live with someone, you notice this among a non-sexual roommate relationship, whether it be homosexual or heterosexual. A person's habit of playing the hi-fi a little bit too loud or burning the toast in the morning, all these little things cause terrific complications when you're living in a very close, intimate relationship. I have it printed up here. But anyway, I offer packets of homosexual literature of DCC. That's a Democratic... I don't care. <laughs> I'm not giving any money. He thinks every call is important. You know, I only take about one out of 20 calls. <laughs> and I think this is, perhaps we ought to talk about this a little bit. For example, uh, customarily in bourgeois society, uh, heterosexual society, the husband is the breadwinner, uh, and uh, there's a kind of a notion of commonly held property. There are certain perquisites. Uh, the husband having certain perquisites, the wife having certain perquisites. Is this equally true in uh, homosexual society? Does this mirror the bourgeois society, what, let's say, which is American society, <coughs> generally speaking? Not, does, is there one person who is the breadwinner? Is, is money shared? Is Are bills paid on an equal basis in, an, in, a, in a, let's say, what would be an, in a long-term affair? How is this worked out? I would uh, like to kick that off. I tell you, I think that my observation is this is one of the advantages of a homosexual relationship. Uh, both people work, both people have relative independence. There is role playing, not in the sense that you go to work and I stay home and keep house as a rule. I sometimes, I, 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 I did make one mistake, which I put up and it was removed from the internet, very popular. It was called Gay Marriage as a Heterosexual Trap. 
I have a copy of that here somewhere. Uh, and what it was is that my first lover, when I opened the button shop, I was in my first long-term affair of eight years, and I had gotten a ticket for selling the marijuana newsletter down on Bleecker Street, which the ACLU had come to my defense and had dismissed because you can sell any literature on the street. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to incorporating my corporation, I went to that lawyer. Now this lawyer, being a, a liberal, was you know very nice New York Jewish liberal lawyer, he said, well, he said, if your lover is going to be your partner in the business, you should have him borrow a thousand dollars, which I didn't need, from his union. He was a member of a, of a union. He worked at NYU, and and for the thousand dollars, give him thirty percent of the stock in your business. Well, what happened was. I was the one that created the button craze. It was totally my hobby. He wasn't really that much involved in the politics of it all. And so he ended up doing that. So he ended up with 30% of the stock. And I've just been reading the letters that I wrote to friends at the time about, uh, and not, I don't know that I have those letters, the ones I'm thinking of was my second marriage, but in the first marriage, he got where he had he wasn't into uh, he wasn't into hippies. He wasn't into you know all the things that were going on. I wasn't into the zodiac and all that stuff either. Like I said, everyone should be a hippie for six weeks. <laughs> Definition of a commune: or ten people get to get and decide they want to live together. And what happens is over time, three of the people do all the work, and the other seven people tend to loaf. Yep. And then the commune slowly disintegrates and falls apart. It just doesn't work out that way, however noble it might sound in theory. So I say that there's more. I have an article in the Daily News where I say everyone should become a hippie for a few weeks because it was, you don't know how much idealism is buried in East Village and in, in hippiedom, right? Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, he wouldn't even come in the store. He got where he hated the store because the st it got rougher and rougher the Summer of Love was very lovely, mm -hmm. but and but he owned he owned thirty percent of the business, so he got where he wouldn't even go in the store, and then our relationship broke up because I was a very selfish male chauvinist pig, who wasn't at all reciprocal in our sexual relationship, and so we were decided to separate, mm -hmm. and because we decided to separate, I had to give him ten thousand dollars in cash for the business. Now at this point, the business is around 1969 or 70. It's beginning to go downhill mm -hmm. because I didn't close it, I think, until 71. And I gave him the $10,000. He bought a trip. He was going to visit a friend in Israel. He bought a trip. I remember he held the ticket over his floor and it reached from the, over his head all the way to the floor because he was going to go to, to Par London and Paris and Zagreb, I think, was the one that he thought was the best of all. And he only got to about five or six stops, and after about two weeks on this journey to Israel, he just was tired of traveling alone. Dubrovnik was the one that he loved. Mm -hmm. And he decided to just skip the, all the stops and go directly to Israel to visit with his friend. Uh, so anyway, I said that given that Fact, what I went through with him, that the lawyers had really married us by mm -hmm. making him a 30% owner in the business, and I had paid that penalty, and in my current relationship, 
my lover had gotten me into the antique business. I knew nothing about it. And if he got sick, first we had a very strong relationship. He was constantly... Oh, I'm okay. Thank you, though. That's very sweet of you. <laughs> he, was, he was constantly storming out. And those are the letters I read as I went through correspondence where we were, after six or seven years, we were having a stormy relationship. And I wrote this friend of mine a letter saying, I'm doomed to a series of 10-year marriages. And, and um, I mean, I didn't realize how, I didn't realize how stormy a relationship I had. Technically, we were supposed to be divorced, but my straight employee, Jerry Hanley, called it the longest running divorce in, in, in Greenwich Village history. And then he got sick towards the end, and he came back in and finished building my store. And we, I suspected he had AIDS. I got him insurance that would cover any expenses, but he didn't believe in insurance. I finally spent six nights and six nights and days in the emergency room corridor of NYU because they wouldn't let AIDS patients in. They said they needed a single room. I finally pushed the bluff on that and ended up joining a lawsuit that got $25,000 penalty, made them change their policy. But anyway, to make a long story short, if he had owned any stock in that store, I was able to put him on the books, keep him on the books, keep his his insurance active and everything when he finally decided to use it after four or five years of living in denial, mm-hmm. uh, that I, I would not anymore own my store because people don't realize if you marry somebody and that person gets a dead, deathly illness and you have these huge medical bills, you are responsible as the mate for those bills. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. government would be owning that store that I ran on Hudson Street, not me. And for that reason, I said that they should separate marriage. Marriage is the only thing that the church does that has legal implications. Mm-hmm. I believe, I'm pretty sure of that. In other words, when you go and get married in a church, it is recognized by the state and the government. So I said that that they should separate these two, that everything should be civil unions, and then you went took your civil union and went to the church of your choice to have it blessed. That was my original stand regarding gay marriage, that it was a heterosexual trap. I mean, heterosexual marriage was, gay marriage was a heterosexual trap. But when they finally legalized gay marriage, I went out to a celebration over here or they had uh, one of the older senators from New Jersey came, he was about 84 years old, and he limped out to wish them well. And they gave their little speeches, and they said, anyone want to speak, I raised my hand, because I had actually added a statement to the, the gay marriage as a heterosexual trap, saying that given that institutions were not going to change, of course, gay people should have the right to, to marriage like everyone else. So in a way, I backtracked to a degree on that. But I don't think that, I think that the whole, the whole argument about gay marriage was based on the 1132, whatever it was, rights that you don't have, you know, if you're not legally, mar- if you're not legally married, then that marriage is recognized by law. Well, do you think, Randy, that uh, your choice of a homosexual role is partially, partially attributable to your revulsion against normal domesticity? 
What do you mean normal domesticity? Well, I'm not saying normal. Let's say bourgeois domesticity. That's a much better word, I think, than the kind of courting process that you've just described, which I think is a very accurate description no. of it. I'm not... No. I, I, uh, no, quite honestly, as far as I'm concerned, I am one of these people that's, all, that's almost entirely homosexual. I have had affairs with women. I found them mostly totally uninteresting. There are two people, two or three people here on the panel, however, who are bisexual and actively so. I don't like that term. For myself, I don't think such a thing exists as a bisexual. You are either well, homosexual <laughs> or heterosexual. This, is, this I find very untrue. I think it is the nature of all human beings to be bisexual and that this perverted nature results in strict homosexuals and strict heterosexuals, both of whom have puritanical attitudes towards the other, uh, you can find homosexuals any day who will say, Heter "Oh, uh, they'll say, oh, you made it with a girl. Oh, how horrible! This is uh, this is awful." And it, the same thing in heterosexual. You'll you speak to a heter I'll speak to a heterosexual friend, and uh, he'll talk. He'll say, "Oh, how horrible! How can two boys have sex together? This is awful." Uh, this is a perversion. This is a, a puritanism on both sides, and both heterosexuals and homosexuals are guilty of it which I find quite revolting to me. I, I think people should be more free. And uh, personally, uh, I find that I have more homosexual relationships, and it's because of the, of the freedom. Call it promiscuity, if you will. I call it freedom. I think it's uh, more that there is more freedom, uh, more honesty between people in a homosexual relationship because the s social rules have built up within a framework which is not widespread and therefore including people who are completely uh, frigid and uh, anti-sex. Uh, but I find uh, an equal amount of satisfaction with a girl who is equally free. As we earlier talked about the Mattachon Society, there are six or seven groups. And he said, what is your program generally aimed at? And I said, aimed at social acceptance for homosexuals, a type of equality if you want to uh, use cliches of the day. And he said, well, that's absolutely ridiculous and repulsive. And I almost fell back at the table, you know. I, I had had a few beers, and here I was at a homosexual party, and to have this thrown at you was a little bit stunning. And I said, why do you say that? And Peter said, because bisexuality is the only way of life. Randy gets another call, this time from a friend. Hey, Randy, he's right here. Okay. Let's trade phones. I'll put that one in the Hello. Oh, great. I'm sitting here being interviewed by this gentleman who does podcasts, which, Mattachine. Imagine, a, a, a young, young, handsome lad interested <laughs> in this ancient history. I'm amazed at these historians. They're such a strange breed. They crawl out of the woodwork unexpectedly and suddenly are interested in these obscured things that even you had half forgotten. I'll be there, but my, my, my husband won't. <laughs> my straight husband. That's why I should start calling him my straight husband. I mean, he's the he's the he's the closest person I have in life, and he's gonna end up getting most of most of what I have when I die, if he doesn't die first. No, I we're not real. I'm not really a wifey type. Actually, what it is is I'm all he has, and he's all I have, and it's like together forever until death do us part. But he happens to be straight, and I happen to be gay. I've known him for 25 years. You know Michael very well. Randy finishes his call, we take a little break, and then we find a thread we were following earlier. Oh, the Witcher research studies. Yeah, yeah. So, 
the way it all happened is they sent me this crazy thing and I didn't have the time to write them back to tell them that I wasn't openly gay, that I would have been kicked out of the University of Texas. They didn't even knew I was gay. If they found out you were gay at the University of Texas, they'd call you in the dean's office. Mm-hmm. And unlike, it gave this wonderful speech to the New York City Council. I should have you see it. I, I was running for president of the student body and I'm one of the few politicians who will admit to you that one day I dreamed of being president of the United States, which they may all laugh at. <laughs> and then I found out that when I ran for president of the student body, all these people started talking about me being gay. Mm-hmm. And the deans found out through a counselor at the psychology at the psychiatric department who talked to my best friend who lived next door to me, mm-hmm. who was paranoid and told him that he thought I might I told him, I said, Edward, he was an alcoholic. I said, Edward, someday I'm gonna find you dead drunk next to a canal in San Antonio, I'm gonna roll you in the in the canal and let you drown. So he went to his counselor and said, I'm living right next door to this maniac, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid he's going to murder me. So, I mean, what about I, colleges and universities? What about What is their attitude towards homosexuality? I mean, is it, if, a, if a man is a, an unabashed homosexual, let us say, and he's a member of the faculty, or let's say if he's a, a member of the student body, how do they feel about homosexuality? And I think he'll be called out for redress. Yeah, Maybe I had particular experience yeah. with this. If his behavior is flagrant. I had experience with this in a Southwestern University. I had a roommate who was kicked out on no more than an accusation there. They were called in. You'd be told someone said you're a homosexual. Within the next seven days, the state police will give you a lie detector test. You can prove your innocence by taking that, or you can drop out of school with a clean record. Needless to say, people dropped out of school right and left with clean records. Which and I was very active in campus politics. And when I was running for student uh, political office, they called me in. And they said a homosexual cannot be a public representative of the student body. And I was put in a situation where I had to rant and rave and pull all the uh, heterosexual stereotypes out of the closet and, and what have you. And it was a very sad situation. Now, in Manhattan, were you a boy... Were you ousted? Huh? I was not ousted, ousted, but I had a roommate who was. I had several friends who were, who actually were very mild people, but I had gotten in a public position. They were a little bit afraid to touch me. Now, here in New York City, there's a difference. On the high school level, we'll begin there. Wow, that bonfire, that's, that's incredible. So the whole thing was because finally I had a showdown with this one guy uh-huh. right in front of the Austin Commons, right in front of the Austin Student Building, and he said, I know you're a queer because I'm dating a girl in the drama department and she knows somebody you went to bed with. Mm. So I said to him, where are you from? And he was from some Wichita, Wichita Texas or something. It wasn't Wichita, I what the name was. And I said, you know, I major in psychology. In psychology, we say that people that are obsessed with the subject usually have problems in that area. (laughs) I said, so let me tell you. I said, if you throw any uh, one bit of mud at me, you're going to get ten handfuls of mud back. Mm. I said, you know, I'm going to graduate. I'm going back to New Jersey. I'm going to pursue my career as a lawyer or whatever. I said, you're going to go back to to Wachahoochee, Texas. And you know what? 30 years from the day, there will be people back in your hometown saying, you know, there were stories about him when he was at the University of Texas. There are several reasons why homosexuals, I've found, go into creative fields. And one of the major ones is that a homosexual usually doesn't have a family. Uh, There are exceptions, of course. 
uh, but he usually doesn't, and therefore he doesn't have the responsibility. The, the down-to-earth, I have to bring home so much money every week in order to feed a wife and whatever children. Therefore, I can go in to a more creative industry which does not maybe pay as much money at first, in which where there are more hardships, such as being an artist, a writer, designer, mm -hmm. uh, all these things, an actor, and I can afford uh, to live in a garret because I'm not, uh, there's n no one dependent on me uh, totally. I think that's, that's an interesting point. I was interested in what you said. But I'd like to elaborate on that point. <coughs> he sort of started off in the vein that I wanted to, to develop, being that uh, since the homosexual doesn't have a family, he doesn't necessarily need to be a breadwinner, you need some sort of um, sustaining force. For example, a uh, homosexual existence, you know, from my point of view, love affairs are very destructive, and uh, I don't think they really, you know, and truly work out. Some people do manage it. So aside from that, and if your social life isn't working out to uh, the way you would like it to, you need something to sustain you, hence the creative art, so you can feel that you are expressing yourself and, uh, most important of all, enjoying your occupation. Mm. In other words, there is a sense of vocation as well. This is what you're interested Precisely. in. Precisely. An that's accomplishment. Yeah. That's very true. I'm curious, after you unintentionally got Mattachine evicted from their offices, how did that affect your relationship with other activists? Did they make it more difficult for you to participate? No, no. What it did is the activists with the Mattachine, you will hear it said that the, the Homosexual League of New York was a one-man organization. Somewhere here I have a great big, a great big printout, uh, 8 by 10, of four or five people working with me. I had packets of homosexual literature that I advertised in the Village Voice and um, oh, here it is, right here. I found. Well, you know, times there are times that my organization pays off. Here, <laughs> just so you know, this is my first appearance at the Hall of Issues, probably around 1963. The so-called one man, one man, homosexual league of New York. Here is in 1962 or three. I was mailing out packets of homosexual literature. Have you seen the literature I had from those days? I have it printed up here. Um, I but don't think I've seen that. So anyway, so here is proof positive that the Homosexual League of New York did exist. Uh, Five people what, at least, right? But what happened? What, what happened? Yeah, and then someone took the picture. So there are six people working on a mailing. Now they wanted me to put to write on the back of these of these posts. In my own, I use this as an example because this is an embarrassing picture. I said, "This is what my handwriting is like." <laughs> I said, "And you want me? You want me actually to, to, to write on the back of to write on the back of, of these pictures?" We looked through the photos for a while, and Randy asked what from this era I would be covering in the second season. Starting in um, 1954 with the daughters of Belitis, um, but of one course, of my biggest supporters, by the way, Barbara and Kate. Barbara Giddings and Kate O'Hoosen. Truly incredible women. Kate's still alive. Yeah. And I have in my possession the only video that was ever shot of Kay. And the way it happened was that she she actually had me sign on as co-author of the book, Gay mm -hmm. Crusaders, which she wrote entirely on her own and which we'd like to have republished, but they can't find the original contract with Crown Publishing, which no longer exists. Neither she nor I can find it. Yeah. New York Public Library was going to reprint that book. 
And that's why that book, I've had people that paid 120 bucks for it online. And we leap ahead a bit into the years immediately following the Stonewall riots. Is they asked me to speak at a meeting at the Electric Circus, which was right opposite my, I'd gone into the button business, became the button king in the late 60s. Yeah. Right opposite my store. And I got up, and as I tell people now, I've learned to reframe it. Because what they all say in the history books, the people that want to be dismissed, everything that Free Stonewall was about, which was really laid the groundwork for them, we are the one that thought out the whole program, mm -hmm. is that I was against Stonewall. What I did is I got up and I said the way to proceed was through nonviolent sit-ins like this, the... Uh, civil rights movement had done, that violence was not the answer. We should not go out in the streets. Now, I, a fight broke out. Some guy in the back, a bouncer, asked this kid, are you one of those queers? And he said yes, and the guy began punching him out. I drove him home that night in my car, and he said, I've been in the movement three days, and I've been beaten up three times. I've been in the movement at that point for 11 years, and I've never been beaten up once. And I thought that was sort of amazing. You know, New York City is, San Francisco supposedly is the most liberal town. And if you read the homosexual publications from San Francisco, when they heard that I was active here, they said they didn't know there were any homosexuals left in New York because they thought they'd all moved out there. But once in L.A., I was doing the same thing. I was walking down the street. I'd come from a friend's house and I was going home. I was tired. And the policeman roared up, jumped out of the cab, grabbed me and start giving me this big thing about uh, what are you doing here, you know, there are a lot of queers around this neighborhood and the, and the mentality is very similar and he said, you know, there's only one thing worse than a queer and that's a nigger and there's this just general reactive type of personality that you can, runs all the way through, you can guarantee the guy's a conservative Republican on top of all this. Has anybody ever met or a homosexual policeman? Yes, yes I have. Um, New York? New York City. Harry Brass talked about when they had GLF, you know, it was a crazy thing, consensus, and the women didn't like it because they were discussing supporting the Black Panthers, the Black Panthers thought women should only serve coffee, etc. But what I didn't know, I went to one of the, a couple of their meetings and I thought they were off the wall. What Perry said, there was one woman that wanted to burn down, to blow up the Metropolitan Museum of Art especially the part where they had all the armor as a blow against the patriarchy. Another woman wanted to burn down the Metropolitan Opera House, you know, as, for some reason. And then there was uh, Marsha and Sylvia, when he was, he was the editor of a socialist newspaper, and they were all demanding that 25% of the courage be given to their group. Marsha and Sylvia threatened to burn down any newsstand in the village that carried the publication if he didn't give them 25%. Now, what's interesting about this is that none of these things happen. The heterosexual sees homosexuality as anarchy, but they really see it as a competing system, and this is yeah. not true. It's not trying to compete. We're not trying to overthrow not as a group, society. No. Not as a group. We're only trying to live with it, whether no. it's bisexuals or homosexuals. Now we can no, see as, as we can a group, homosexuals are not... So that was news to me, and then when I heard about this stuff, I've always said the G GLF, it's greatly overrated, and it is, but what I didn't realize is that GLF was very effective. I really now have a new vision. Once again, I'm correcting myself. I learned something that made me change my opinion, and that is, and imagine the police department, who for years has followed Manishing Society, and all of a sudden they go into GLF and they hear proposals to blow up the Metropolitan Museum, 
burned down the Metropolitan Museum of, of Opera. And I can imagine how, you know, cops talk to the press. Boy, you know, those queers in the village, they've really got out of whack now. You know what they're talking about. I bet that got, that is probably why. I had did a series of me, the New York Post, when it was a liberal paper, mm -hmm. did a series about sex and the laws or homosexuality and the laws. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had gotten no attention at all with all our nice little, you know, talks and trying to lobby quietly and going on TV and radio, making our pleas for the same rights as other people. But, you know, I really think that probably it were these crazy, crazy rumors that sprang from GLF meetings that probably got the reporters downtown are not interested in the fact that, you know, you've, you, your civil rights for homosexuals, that's an old story, you that's know? That's a great headline. Right. And when I got up to speak that night, by the way, it was 1969, and every newspaper in the country was filled with stories about how blacks had shot themselves in the foot because they had burned down their own neighborhood. For him, for him to get so hurt. You know, the police are there, as a friend of mine said, to protect property, not people. Yeah, well, what happens is you have to, when, you know, we go out there and we work picking up cans or whatever, but we're all constantly being watched and harassed by the police while we're doing that. Okay, because they think maybe we're going to steal something, maybe we're going to do whatever. But then, the next minute, you know, and, and, and a lot of times they'll stop and they'll check your ID and they'll do all this, you know. But then the next minute, you know, the next day, you have the homeless police coming through here going, well, we care about you, and we're, you know, hey, give me a break, make up your mind. You said the homeless police? Yes, it's a homeless uh, outreach unit. That's Randy on the Christopher Street Piers in 1995 interviewing Sylvia Rivera and a man named John, Sylvia's neighbor who is living with AIDS. They and several other people live there on the piers. Sylvia takes Randy on a tour to see their home and meet a few people. But let me but take... Why don't you... Why don't, we have, like, a mic and everything. Uh -huh. So maybe you can, like, give Randy a tour of the piers. So where are we going to... What do you want to do? Actually, I want, I want to introduce you to John. John. Hi, John. how are you? And who, who, who is John? Who is John? Yeah, who's this John? John, John has, a bit, has an interesting story to tell. I just met John a couple of months ago when I moved down here. But John is very impressive because of the simple fact, John has had full-blown AIDS for the last 10 years, and he still survived, and, he's a, and he works these streets. And John can go into further detail on how these organizations have turned him and his lover, Jim, away because they are homeless and they have no place. So have you gone to places like GMHC? Yeah, they've turned me down. On um, what basis? I walked in and I said, I'm homeless. I have AIDS and I need assistance and they would say there is no services available for you here. Go to welfare, go to whatever. And then I go to welfare and social security and you get turned down all throughout that too. We've been homeless for the most part of eight years. My lover has AIDS dementia. Um, very, he's getting to the very serious stage now, you know, the last stage. and. How long have you two been together? Eight years. Yeah. yeah. 
No family or anything like that. How many people are there? A number of people like your lover down or that you've run into on the homeless? There's a lot of people out here. Uh, None of them are getting any attention at all? Nobody is getting any help? There's one that lives beside us, but I, I can't say her name or even show you where he li well, actually, she lives. Um, I, uh, Janice is willing to speak and whatnot. And, and Janice has been one of our main, main concerns right yeah, now. Yeah, she's a big concern right now. She has serious dementia, HIV cognitive impairment. She can't even get on welfare. She's been trying so hard. I've been, I work with John, and what we call work is like when we go out and try to pick up cans or find something that's valuable to sell. Is that John, I, I thought, you know, he was joking with me, but John does get run down very easily. And now I'm seeing different factions of what AIDS does to people because he'll I have to rest for a little while and we'll sit and we'll bullshit for an hour, you know, a half hour and one and it's just okay now I'm ready. But it it hurts to see that people are not being helped. We're hit by the plague of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And who would have ever thought that we would have survived that onslaught? I can't yeah. believe that we survived that and came through it as well as we did. And you know what excuse that I, I use? This people will not like this phraseology, but I, through my own observations, um, there's one guy who wrote the ultimate book. He, he was hated for it on the cause of AIDS. But the way I take on the 70s, they have this awful movie out called Sex in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so much fun. You, you look down and you saw somebody on the street, he looked kind of good, so you gave him a sign to come up, he knocked on your door. You opened the door, he wasn't as good looking as he, as he looked 300 <laughs> feet away, but you had him come in anyway, right? And they had backroom bars, and they had orgies, and they had the piers, and they went down to the trucks and climbed around in the dark and had physical contact with 30 or 40, 50 people, that to me was always disgusting. That was not my scene. As a matter of fact, at that same place where Sylvia walked out, I stood up and said, it doesn't matter how many notches you have in your gun, how many people you manage to lay. What's important in life is the quality of deep relationships you make with other human beings. Do you know that somebody got up angrily and said to me, you sound like a homophobe. Oh, wow. My, my mouth fell as open as yours just did. <laughs> it was the one time in my life I was accused of being a homophobe. I found that the boys were far less shocked. and It didn't bother them. Uh, I have many uh, heterosexual friends, and it didn't bother them particularly. Uh, the type of homosexual that bothers a fairly well-oriented uh, heterosexual boy is the type who will drive around in a car or walk around and make very, very sneaky passes who will not be open and honest. And of course, this is very frightening. These people uh, uh, bother me. I don't particularly like to be hitchhiking on a road and be picked up by a man who will you know, say, hello, how are you, blah, 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 come on in, let's go for a ride. And as soon as you get going down the highway, here comes a hand sneaking across the seat. Uh, this sort of thing is repulsive to me. I think he should come out and say what he wants to say. Do it and be free slugged. about it. Get slugged anywhere. He certainly wouldn't be slugged by me and most of the boys that I know. 
No, no, I, so you I can't ran, maintain that you want somebody to walk up to you on the streets and say, well, you know, let's go up to my place? This is something very... No, I'm not saying that, that uh, you should walk down the, down the street and as soon as you see someone who's attractive, whether it be male or female, go right up and say, let's go to bed. But there is also a way to be subtle and not sneaky. But if you, if you are a practicing homosexual, you, you will know that there is a ritual. And it's really, it's truly magnificent. In, you know, in the art of cruising because I've discussed this and also the bit you might be very tired you've had a very pleasant evening you might have been to the theater you might have been to the movies you might have been walking and you're going home you're not interested in sex you don't want a sexual partner but you pass somebody you know it's definitely wrong but once this chain of events have been put into play you've got to go through with it and it's very elaborate and uh, it's, it's very humorous sometimes you too know, and it's marvelous well I disagree with, with both uh Opinion. Well, my experience has been that generally, you know, homosexuals are promiscuous and uh, that sex is the most important element in a relationship because it seems if uh, no matter how many sterling qualities you have, you might have a, a wonderful intellectual capacity, you're very sensitive, and uh, you're just a wonderful companion. But if you don't have a virtuoso performance in the boudoir, <laughs> it doesn't work. I know people that have been. <coughs> together three, four, five years, mm-hmm. everything is going very well with them, but they're absolutely not suited for each other for sex. And they do not have sex with each other, but yet their relationship is the best possible. I was one of those people who was very tempted to have a bleach, and I was going to go into the bookstore on the corner and throw bleach around because I thought... They were cesspools that were selling death at $10 a pop because you paid 10 bucks and go downstairs. They didn't care what you did there. And people went there and had unprotected sex. So I thought the baths also should be closed because I thought they were not a venue for sex education. They were a venue for spreading for promiscuous, unprotected sex. Was this before AIDS? This is during AIDS. During AIDS. As a matter of fact, I couldn't mention this. I gave a talk at the, the, the March on Washington at a congressional cemetery for Leonard Makovic. He invited me to speak. And I said, oh, I would love to. I said, because you know what, why Makovic is, a, to me, a hero. It isn't because he fought the Army or the Air Force and made the cover of Time magazine, People's Right to Serve. And it, and it isn't even because of his sign on his, on his grave that says, the Army gave me a medal for killing two men and dishonorable discharge for loving one. To me, what really makes him a hero is that in San Francisco, he was the toast of the town. Everyone loved Leonard Makovic. And when AIDS hit, he went public and said, we should close the bathhouses in this city because they facilitate the spread of HIV. And I said, we're on the top of the pile and you have everything to lose, you're the most popular man in town, to go out and speak the truth because you think it's important to speak the truth and suddenly become violently hated by half of the community for doing so. That, to me, is a real measure of a man. And that's why Makovic is a, is a hero to me. Yeah. And what's his name said? Oh, he said, you can't say that. You can't bring that up in your 2010 talk. That's still a very divisive issue in our among our community. Because there is a there is, there is a slippery slope argument. If they close the baths, then what next? They close the 
the bars, people meet in the bars, or they yeah. raid the cruising places, and next, you know, uh-huh. where do you draw the line? Yeah. I want I, I have to see something done for them. It's not for me, because I have somewhere to go. I think I, I can find a place to go, but I can't see them surviving another winter out here. Yeah, I'm, I'm flabbergasted because, I mean, I, I've considered myself very aware on all these AIDS issues, and uh, it just didn't dawn on me that, that uh, there'd be no support at all. You know, I figured that even the homeless uh, would be getting, you know, immediate SSI and, and uh, medical care. I may spend the winter out here for the simple fact that if I can't see them off the street, why should I go get shelter for myself? Because right now, I have to prove a point as a Stonewall veteran. But hurting yourself doesn't do us no good. I will always. Sylvia can make a lot of noise. Let's go on up and... She can make noise, I'll tell you that. And that's important, making noise. This is yet another instance that displays Randy's ability to change, particularly in the decades following Stonewall. Having met more radical activists and women like Sylvia from Star, the street transvestite action revolutionaries, he learned new points of view, but it took a long time to hear them. And that's interesting, too. You've heard the story that when you take a memory and refile it, it changes. Mm-hmm. For years, I told the story about why that Sylvia Rivera didn't like me, because I vividly remember typing this story in which I used the term Mr. Sylvia Rivera, showed up wearing, I don't know, lipstick and a headscarf or something. And in my memory... I claim that in an article that was this long, I used Mr. Sylvia Rivera 10 or 12 times. Mm. When I finally, Michael Cusino was here, he said, we have to, I want to find that article. It turned out that it was in an issue of gay newspaper. I used Mr. Sylvia Rivera once. And I said she was the only one at the demo. Wrong. Star was there. There were about six demonstrators who carried placards, including those saying Star, and the police that were there watching were discussing whether or not they would fit on one of their, their baseball teams or something. We're joking about that. So memory, what I remember most is that I'm usually a very rigorously fair, even though it's sometimes distasteful to me, very rarely. And I think that's probably the reason it stands out in my mind so much. It's one time that I gave in to the bad side of myself and with venom, like when I typed Mr. Sylvia Rivera, I mean, literally, I felt a, a, a high from the venom that yeah. I was getting dripped from my fingers. And yet, when I retrieved it and read the article itself, which I have here somewhere, I think I put it up on Facebook, too, I used it only once, and with my skills as a writer, no one else would have picked up on that arrow of hate that I had sent flying Sylvia Rivera's way. But guess who did? Who did feel it intensely was Sylvia Rivera. Of course. Because after that article, any time my name was mentioned in connection with being on some sort of a panel or something, she said, I won't be with that fascist. For years, you've trashed me in print. And, and, but I, I confess to that. I, I, I've seen the error of my ways. I think no, I, no, no, it's not, I was no. very cruel when I was younger and more intolerant. I treated you very unfairly in the gay newspaper, and I apologize right now. You don't have to apologize because, you know, I remember the time that we went to um, the U.N. 
and I was dressed in my grub of the revolutionary look, you know, the army pants, the army jacket, and there's Mr. Sylvia Ray Rivera, I and I was like, oh. now that, that was that was a time that I read you, you were going to execute a puppy opposite St. Patrick's, which oh, I thought was a horrible. I was like, not me, I had nothing to do with this. It never happened, but they had they had the humane society, it was some sort of a stunt that didn't come off. Somebody was, it was the gay ghost doing that, oh. and, and unfortunately, we got him Involved into it. That's when I said, Mr. I, I, I confess, I told you, I said, I wrote this article, and 20 times I said, Mr. Sylvia Rivera showed up wearing a dress and earrings. Mr. Sylvia Rivera with said, an Army jacket with an army coat. I said, I had Mr. Sylvia Rivera in there that I never called Mr. anyone Mr. so many times in one article oh, my entire oh, life. I was, I was like, I'm saying, why is he doing this to me? And, I, and actually, that's when, uh, you know, I'll. Rivalry, I mean, well, my mortal, right. I would say, well, I'm misunderstanding. He like me, I'm going to read him every time I got. And you know, you know what one of my most embarrassing moments was? Was for the 20th anniversary when we did the lecture at the community center and you came in late. And once again, I was feeling no pain, but Randy came in late. Well, I don't see why Marsha and Sylvia had to speak first. And I was like, that's it. I didn't I remember that. I didn't remember that what it started. I just remember that you were circling around in the back room screaming at me. And I was I, I was saying, but you're not a typical homosexual. I remember right. That I thought was my but then, but then I, But then I felt bad because I knew that you had already been, you know, taking care of Marsha and whatnot. Even Marsha and says, but you know, Randy's been good to me. I said, well, he's been good to you. I said, but he's been reading me for years and I'm not taking it. There were many a times that I was invited to do panels. Well, Randy, I said, well, I'm not going. Randy Rick is going to be, I'm not going. I am not joining the I said, because there'll be a war. And I think the people knew that. And I think this is the theatrics that they wanted us to play against oh, each other. you against one another if they yeah. think that you're so enemies, you know? A lot of times that I was invited, well, Randy Wicker's going to ask, I don't think so. I said, I'm not going there. And I would think about it. And I said, well, I should go. And then I said, but why should I do that to myself and to him? And, you know, it's a, it's a, the community thrives. I gossip and trashing each other. And I say, we are revolutionists. I say, Randy did hit his way. I, I used to be an enemy of Bob Culver's, too. I tell people. When you get older, all these things are not so important. And I think it's a real testimonial to the power of the love. Marsha B. Johnson was just living Marcia, love. Marcia that she, she, in a sense, brought us together. You know, I'm that. Because when I was running her funeral, and I realized it was important that you speak, and then we do it, and we did it in the way of chronology. When people knew her, and you gave a wonderful uh, talk that day, and uh, I, I was like, you made up. That was I did yeah, because I le because I I left church, and you know I went and had a few drinks. I said, well, I'm going. To, I was with my girlfriend Terry, and I said, Terry, I have to go speak to Randy, and she's like, because even you know a lot of my friends knew who you were by me speak. I said, and that, as soon as I said, oh, he's running the funeral. I said, that bitch is running the funeral. I said, how dare he? But I was really impressed by everything that was done by you. 
by Bob, and mainly you because, and I just... I thought I had an obligation to Marcia, you know, I mean, it was a sense of respect Marcia and her friends and to give everybody their peace, you know. And I was like, you know, I was impressed and I said, this man, even after, you know, drawing, even after I did my, you know, my eulogy to Marcia one and I sat there and I was crying and one, and then when you got up and spoke and I was reading what you had written and what came from your puppy, what's the puppy's name? Puppy. To oh. Marsha. Oh, I was like, now this man has a heart. I said, there's no way that I can be angry at him for the rest of my life. We've, we've all fought in different ways for liberation. Tony, you know, Marsha B. Johnson lived with me. Oh, yes, I'm very aware. And please plug that pot, the free movie on YouTube called Pay It No Mind. A lot oh, of yes. people don't know that. They all see the Netflix thing. Mm -hmm. She worked very hard at getting herself. She was watching her weight. They said in her obituary that she had a body a gym boy would die for, when, you know, when she died, even when she died. And she could fall asleep on the top of the, the booming boxes of the anvil, literally sleep on top of booming speakers at the anvil. The poor girl would have been deaf if she hadn't, if she had lived this long. Like her brother, Robert, he says, she never did look good in any outfit. You know, he just had this kind of, but he spoke at her funeral and gave us, I have a video of that, I have a DVD of it, um, in which he said that she never, he gave her some clothes, and what she did, she gave it away to somebody else, and he said, I didn't buy you those clothes for you to give them away to people, but that's the way Marsha was. Yeah, it's very giving. Yeah, we totally. Yeah. That's what I said, I said they should have on the statue, I suggested the idea that Marsha be there begging and people maybe could even put money in their hands or go into a locked box or something. It could be used to give money to like Sylvia Rivera House at mm -hmm. the MCC or something. She could continue doing in death what she had done in life. And Sylvia should be there with her fist raised because mm -hmm. Sylvia was the screamer and the activist and Marsha was the one who was the saintly beggar mm -hmm. and sharer. Do you remember how you first met Marsha? Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I had met this boy who was a dancer at the Gaiety, mm -hmm. and he had, I never taught, I'd seen him, I used to go to the Gaiety, which was a male strip show, and one night, New Year's Eve, I went with my lover and another couple, we went there just to see the show, because it was fun, and they have intermission where you talk to people, and this boy came out where he had a white towel on and two pink balloons, one on each side of, <laughs> and he, he did this, he wasn't a good dancer, but he really worked it, I, grinding it out, right? And I said, it's amazing. I said, that boy is actually really creative. To have created a costume consisting of one white towel and two pink balloons, and it really came off really great. And anyway, I started talking to him at the intermission, and somehow the subject of gay activism came up, and I said I was involved with the Mattachine Society. And he said, well, I was president of Gay Youth in Baltimore. At the age of 16, he had founded Gay Youth in Baltimore. Wow. And he was a very bossy, very, he was sort of like me, sort of like very determined. He decided gay youth should buy Christmas trees and sell them to raise money in downtown Baltimore. And somehow they got busted for this, and he ended up on TV at the age of 16 saying that they were organizing a group for gay youth in Baltimore. And he, and that was sort of around 1970 eight or something. But anyway, he 
I told, he said, I hang out in the village. I told him I had a shop. And he said, I hang out with Marsha. And I had met Marsha in 1972 as a reporter for a gay newspaper. The GAA activists had gone in and rescued her from Bellevue Hospital where they had her locked up in a rubber room. And they all had speared her out in the middle of the crowd as they brought, came down in the elevator. And my impression of Marsha was that she was sweet and like a little, a little spacey maybe, but you know, sweet, gentle creature. But I said to Willie, I said, because he's 18, 19 years old, right? I said, I don't think that Marsha is the kind of person you want to be associated with. Well, he came by the store and actually he designed a lamp that night. He said, oh, he said, you make these lamps? I said, yeah, I put old parts together with new parts. And he said, well, how, how, what if you want to make this shade and put it on that? And he suddenly started picking parts. So I ended up working with him for about two hours. It was nice company and he was interesting. And he made me laugh, particularly he had a great sense of humor. Although I didn't discover until months later that he couldn't read or write. And only got, had literally was illiterate and had been abused as a child. And his mother used to hide with him in the park from this abusive father and say to him, look, you have to go and tell the judge that the father provoked you into beating him because your father, if your father goes to jail, I have no other means of support. And anyway, so he came to live here. I invited him to move in. He he was just such a so funny. He made everyone laugh. Everyone loved Willie, and he was here. I guess he had only been here a few months. Uh, and he said, um, "Could it's ten degrees out? Could Marcia come? Uh, she could sleep on the floor. Marcia likes to sleep on the floor." That was now, one of the interesting things Willie had told me, and I found to be a very true true saying is he said to me, first they lie, then they steal. And when he said that to me, you know, I've run a couple businesses. At this point, I've been in business for, I don't know, 13, two, two, or three, two or three businesses. And I went through a catalog in my mind. And I realized that everyone that I knew who had stolen from me had actually lied to me before. And I thought, that's interesting. And I've tested that ever since. I found out that to be the case. But anyway, I said to myself, to myself, Willie, you're the ones that told me that first people lie and then they steal. Why would you tell me a crazy lie that Marsha likes to sleep on the floor? So I said to Willie, I said, you sure she wouldn't steal? He said, oh no, Marsha would never steal. I said, okay. So Marsha came in that night and she was here for the next 10 or 12 years. <laughs> and did she like sleeping on the floor? Yes. The reason she likes sitting on the floor, she'd been shot in the back by a cab driver mm -hmm. and a bullet had lodged so close to her spine, especially if it was damp, she could be sitting in a chair and say the drain was coming, you know how you could feel the dampness in the air? Mm -hmm. You could see her kind of like flinching a little bit like that. She never complained. But Marcia often liked to sleep on the floor because a stiff hard floor was easier on her back than a soft couch. And, you know, we, we, we do manage to survive. I, you know, do stupid things like I did in May, you know, jump in the river and try to kill myself because I, you know, that's when I reach bottom. Then I bounce back. But what's given me a lot of incentive right now is, like, being back in the village instead of being in Westchester and keeping myself confined from what my life has always been is to fight for something. 
and, and stop being comfortable because I was comfortable for a lot of years. You know, like I said, we owned a house. My lover and I did own a house. And um, I ran a catering business on the side. I was making monies, but, and actually what happened, you know, it's been like three years is when, when, when I got that telegram, the marshal was dead. I mean, I lost a lot of my incentive to do anything. And that's when I started reaching for the bottle more heavily than I was doing. And I find myself back in this situation, but as I look at the river a lot of times, and Marsha gives me a lot of strength, is that I gotta keep fighting for somebody. Because Marsha was a fighter, we were both fighters, and we, I am a survivor. Marsha's not here to survive with me. Marsha unfortunately had to she passed on, but she's with me in spirit, and she gives me a lot of hope. Every time I look at that damn river and I sit there and meditate on the river, she gives me, I actually feel her spirit telling me, you gotta keep fighting, girlie, because it's not time for you to cross the River Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> and we were supposed to cross it together. You know, that's one reason the cops thought that uh, she committed suicide, because she had been heard saying to somebody in a bar, Across the River Jordan, I said she said that five for times years. a day. For years, five times a day, every day of her life. For years, for years, it was there her was favorite one, term. There, there was an incident one time when I lived with her on 12th Street that she came in, and she was at a dance, and her and Terry had to break down the house to her door because I had slipped my wrist. I had lost it. It actually was like the fourth anniversary gay march when I was beat up on stage by Vito Russo. Mama Jean told him to go ahead and do it. That's when Gino Leary got powerful and drag queens were no longer needed in the movement. Gino Leary finally sort of had a scandalous end, you know. Yes, I understand that, the old tacky bitch. <laughs> I love her deal. But Marsha came home and she felt that I had done something. And I had the wall splattered with blood and whatnot. I got 60 mm. stitches, because I slid up. Ugh. And she came home, and her and Terry were actually the ones that had me sent to the hospital. And, and Marsha said, you're not crossing that River Jordan without me. Me and you and I will cross it together. And when she died, Part of me went with her because one of our packs was that we would always cross River Jordan together. And to me, this is the River Jordan, the Hudson River. How did you reconcile with Sylvia? Uh, she came to Marsha's funeral and I said to her, Sylvia, today we have to bury the sword for Marsha. And I had a packet of literature and in the packet of literature, which I have somewhere here, uh, there is a letter from my dog. And the dog has written a letter to Sylvia saying, Dear Sylvia, I miss you so much coming home. No, dear Marcia, I miss you so much coming home in the morning at 4 o'clock and taking me for a romp in the park. I miss, I miss snuggling and sleeping next to you all day in Randy's bed. I'd go to work. Marcia would go and spend the day in my bed sleeping all day. And it was just, and then I had a picture of Cooey's face, and, and then I had 
Cooey's paw print. And Sylvia said that reading that letter from my dog to, to um, Marsha made her first think, maybe Randy isn't such a bad person after all. Because it had been a panel we both were on in 1989 at the center, the 20th anniversary, and Sylvia claims that I really objected to her speaking before me. But all I remember was that I was dressed in a suit and two things happened. I was dressed in a suit and tie and Sylvia started screaming at me. She was a screamer. She, she, was, you know, she was a drug user and an alcoholic and all that. And she kept screaming at me and got off the stage and circled around the back of the room and I just stood there saying, you are not a typical homosexual. You are not a normal homosexual. I think that might one of one of the two. And this was carried on the weekly gay cast at whatever his name that is now at Fails Library, but I don't know if they've ever cataloged his shows. That's right. Uh, the guy who ran the gay news weekly news program. This is before um, Andy Hum and Ann Northrup took, started their cast, or maybe they took over his cast on public television. But anyway, Marsha ran out after Sylvia that day and said, Sylvia, Randy has given me a home for the last eight or nine years. You should, you should, you know, give him a, 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 you know, you should give him a chance. And she said, I don't want anything to do with that fascist, blah, blah, blah. But we buried the hatchet for, and we carried Marsha's ashes. If you see that picture of us marching out of the river, mm -hmm. I think I'm carrying the ashes. And there's Norma and the family, and there's Sylvia. We're all carrying the ashes down to the river together. And she told me that she was staying at a homeless encampment called Gay Pier, mm -hmm. which is up, which is up around 13th Street or something, right next to the trash station that used to be there. And that, and I said, oh, I'd, I'd be very interested in coming and interviewing you there. So we made an appointment, and I got a guy named Tom. Iorio, and there's an hour and a half video, <clears throat> which everyone tells me is the best video I ever shot. It's incredible. The pier was actually established a few years before I got here. I came down to be nosy and I moved in and took over basically as the big mother that I am. Now, do the, is this, does this belong to the city? This the property, property belongs yeah. to the city. It does. Mm. And um, we just like... Um, you have electricity? I see a fan. Yeah, well, but that I found in the street and I've never been able to stop since this video. Oh. But um, <laughs> we, you know, we keep it up. And yeah. you know, I know, being that you, you knew Marsh for a long time, as well as I did, you know, I got my little candles burning in the corner for the saints. So. We're, we're like doing, um, we, what, we had the summer, summer house as we called it. All this was not covered up there. Uh -huh. All this was open with plastic that we would roll up so we could uh -huh. have air. But now that it's winter and it's getting a little bit what, You have no heat though, right? We have no heat. And um, we're just like, Doing this until we get out of here before the winter comes in. 
Uh huh. But like I said, the kids, um, Jim and John, um, like I told them that you. you Have you ever spent a winter in these, in you know, like out of doors in an I spent, environment like this? I spent winters with um, Marsha and some of the other drag queens many years ago before Starhouse and drawing, you know, drawing the beginning of Starhouse out in the street, but. They didn't have homeless encampments in those days. We didn't. Did we, we slept in hallways, or either Marsh or I had a hotel room where we snuck everybody in. You know, it wasn't like this. This uh -huh. is like a complete new atmosphere for me because I mean I've been like I like this. Let me have a cigarette before you go. You know. Um, yeah. While we're doing this, why don't we get a little into it? Why don't you take the um, microphone out and I'll shoot you on Stonewall Veterans Meeting. Is... Okay, we happen to, over here, we happen not to be HIV positive or anything. But my friends and the kids, as I call them, because they're all younger than me, uh -huh. they are actually ill. There's two people down there that's got full blown AIDS that have been out in the streets for 10 years. And I don't see where this money is going from this community that... I'm not saying that they have to... Have, are they plugged in to try to get into places like Bailey House? They have tried. They have tried. They have tried. So just because you're homeless, you're just the lowest priority, right? Uh, yeah, that's the whole thing. And it's, you know, it's funny that, um... Like I said, I'm going to bring it up at the meeting tomorrow. I, I want a meeting with the director of the Gay Community Service Center and find out why there's nothing being done. I mean, even bag lunches, what does it cost? I mean, is the tax right off? Well, what if you could try God's Love We Deliver? And I remember at one point, Sylvia was telling me how they wouldn't even give God's meals, God's lovely meals. God's love, we deliver meals there mm -hmm. because anything, they couldn't get any mail there. The reason for this was that if they had somehow gotten mail delivered to that location, I think somehow by law under real estate law or something, it would give them residency on that spot. And that was Port Authority land. Mm -hmm. So the Port Authority was very careful. Now they had, as you know, a good relationship with the people that ran the the, the dumpster place of people that were the city workers that took care of the trash because they watched out for their cars. So if some vandal was getting into their cars, they would alert them to the fact that people were trying to break into their cars. Apparently it seems to me you're just on a, on a, a loop somehow that, you know, because I mean, they give, they, I'm sure that, I'm sure that, that the people that run these organizations, a lot of them are volunteers. I know people that volunteer. And I'm sure that it would be more rewarding to run down here with some, yeah. some meals for people. And they said, they said you had to have an address. I said, well, I have. It just doesn't have a number. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we need a number. 399. That would be interesting to test our gay city councilman who's HIV positive and ask him if there's a way they can pass a bill or introduce legislation to give an address. Yeah. There has to be. I mean, this is a part of New York. This is something. I don't know it. It could be given a number and a name. Because the other problem is... Department, they have an address. They get mail delivered every day. But the other problem is... that number A. But the other problem is, is now that, that uh, you know, they're threatening to have us kicked out at any time. Now, who's they? Well, 
We're not sure exactly who they is. We believe it's the city, but the signs up there is there say the Hudson well, Conservancy. Was, you know, did you no, right. did you notice? The We're having a meeting. We could go there. Yeah, you know, because they're planning on on on, on kicking us out. They was were that here who they were? Morning. There were suits, yeah, and, and they were pointing and whatnot. See, they're planning on, on clearing this all out. Now, you see how clean we keep it here. We, you know, try. we try. We try. It's hard. Well, where but, would you go? I mean, is there an option where you... Well, we'd be sleeping on a, we'd be sleeping on a, on, on a bench step somewhere. But there, various, there are a number of little encampments like this around New York, right? Yes. Yeah, but, but they're but mostly like that over there. This Crack Haven. Uh, this is something else I think people never think this, of in terms. This is, this is um, this is the gay community of the homeless people. Is this the only uh, encampment of gay homeless that you know? That I know of right now. I mean, it's not Crack Haven, you know. I'm just uh, that's mostly gay over there on that pier, but that's a lot. Down of, towards that end, and yeah. up that, oh, that's that way. So, and down towards yeah. that. And it, it, well, actually, you know, the only thing that, the, that was great when the New York Times article came out was... When was that? How long ago? Do you still have the article? No, it was, uh, the, it was a Sunday Metro section front page. Uh, it was, it was like called the He-She's, Shanty Town of the He-She's or something right. like that. What, what now? There's a wall over there, but what about those people over in that section? Are they part of the other section? Or are they um, part of this section? They're actually a part of both sections. They, um, we get along very well with them, and unfortunately, they're in, you know, to the crack and whatnot. But you know, we share amongst ourselves because when they find food, they bring us food, and when we find food or whatever food is given to us, we all share it. Throughout their interview on the pier, it seems as though Randy and Sylvia are coming to a deeper understanding as she explains her past with drug use and drug use in the gay community in general. Randy's had some experience with interviewing people about drug use. In fact, in a 1966 interview, also on WBAI, with the man who called himself St. Philomena, Randy's interview subject actually begins shooting heroin suddenly during the interview. I shouldn't have taken two fixes in this short of time. Well, and I was soaking up this junk like a sponge. It's ridiculous. <sighs> that was the last, huh? What is the central difference? Where is the real difference between the... The difference is, well, with one thing, uh, I had a, an affair with a girl who was, uh, I mean, I was her god, and, uh... Your what? How long will it take for this stuff to, you know, clear up? Mm. How long? Wake up a little bit. You can hear Randy's entire 1966 interview with St. Philomena at QueerSerial.com slash Wicker. Back on the piers in 95. And I'm the first one to say, oh, I'll smoke a joint in a minute with a, with a beer in my hand. But my thing is alcohol. And Randy, you've known that for years. <laughs> I shot dope in fucking City Hall when we went to do one of the 
uh, for the for the gay rights bill. I needed a fix. I went right into the woman's room and I said, beep, and they were calling me and I'm like, but the world doesn't know what Sylvia Rivera did behind doors. And I'm not afraid, I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. Actually, when I say these things, I say it because I don't want to see our young gays do what I've done through my life. Yeah. And like I once again say, yes, we all drink down here on this side, but we're not into heavy drugs. And, and that's the main focus point that people got to realize that just because you're homeless, we're not, we're not sick people. I was shooting dope and... Now, have you stopped that completely? Oh, yeah. My biggest... How did you have it? Was that hard to do? Or how, what, what caused you to stop? What enabled you to I mean, stop? You know, what happened was that, you know, as a matter of fact, the same incident that I, I discussed about when Marsha busted into our house where Terry was, that I was... We were all living, as we always did, you know, there was 10 of us living in a, in, in a one-bedroom apartment, but we came home and we found this queen that we called Lady June dead. And she had died actually from methanol poisoning because she was trying to kick the habit and she, her system wasn't used to alcohol and methanol. The rest of us were, but, um, that was like, a wake-up call for you. It was a big wake-up call because between Marsha and myself, it took between going to Philadelphia and trying to find her family and coming back on the bus, on the Greyhound bus from Philly, I said, Marsha, I have Lady June's aunt's number in the Bible. Because one thing that I was very good at it. it was like everybody write down your real boy's name, your family. I don't care. Do you have, do you have uh, Phyllis's number? I have I have Janice's number, yeah. And I was like, um but joined you know, when you come home and find somebody laid out on your couch dead, it's a complete but Marsha and I spent two to three days in Philly trying to find a family and on the way home I said, well, I, wait, we can. Did you finally find the family? Yeah, I did get a hold of the family here and the family came and claimed the body. And it was a hurting feeling and then I just decided, you know, that it was my time to stop shooting drugs. I kept Marshall locked out of our own house for three weeks while I kicked the habit on my own. I wouldn't let nobody in the house. And Marsha understood. Because I know, from what I understand, I don't know how true it is, but through the years that I knew Marsha, and it was almost 30 years, Marsha was not into drugs and into drinking. People, I always, we always, that was something, people, we thought she had a very fragile personality and realized she had a fragile personality, as wonderful and warm as she was, and that she knew she couldn't handle any drugs or alcohol, and that's why she and didn't. People, when I was doing well, and I used to come down to the village, and I would, and I basically used to come down just to, to find her, just so I could give her money, just to give her money. 
couple dollars, a little change. A little change for the simple fact that she would tell me if I tried I, I remember the first time that I saw her after like two years after I had moved upstate, up to Terrytown and whatnot. And I came, I said, well, girl, I got some money. I said, I, and I tried to slip her a 50. She looked at him and she said, oh, no, Miss Dang. I don't need that. Because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give it away. Just give me a couple of dollars, a little change. And it bothered me, even though I went home. I was like, and, I, and Frank was with me. That's the first time that Frank came down to the village and he met Marsha and he said, but why didn't she take the money? I said, because this is the way Marsha is. Marsha knows what she's capable of doing. And she knows that if she took that money, she told me. I would give it away. So what I ended up leaving her was $10. I said, well, here. I said, you want a drink? I'll just buy me a sandwich, girlfriend. Fine, I bought her a sandwich. Well, here's $10. Listen, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed seeing the situation here today, and I think it's time for a little media blitz. We know a little bit about media blitzes. I think that the gay newspapers in New York should I do really articles, and I think that the organization should be confronted, and there should be a little a con, a little noise made, and that the situation should be changed you know better. What, you know what, Randy? Like one we can still raise hell, can't we? You, oh, yes, you can stay sober for a couple days? I can stay sober and I'll fucking go. I got to go to bat to hell for, for the community now. Because, and I'm glad that you have come down and seen. I know that you had mentioned it and mentioned it. And I'm glad that Tom and yourself came down. Tom has been down several times. And I'm glad that you came down. And even the other day when you said it, I said, well, fine, you come down. Because I want you to see, because I know you're a hellraiser as well as I am. And right now, I've closed so many networks in the past, and now the networks have to be open for the simple fact that you see what, what this poverty is in the gay community when the gay community center is only two blocks away from here. I mean, I'm, hey, I'll, be I'm there to, I'll be there when to stand up on the other side of the room so they can't just shut you up and ignore yes, it. We have to do something. And it's not even just the homeless issue. It's the everybody. AIDS issue right here. It's that you can't have holes in the, in the safety net big and, enough and, uh, and so big that this stuff goes is on. just letting it the community doesn't know. I don't want to defend the community because I, I, I really think that we have a compassionate and good community. And I think if people, I can, I can tell you myself that I've undergone somewhat of a transformation today coming here. I've heard about it. That's but I think if our community knows and understands that, look, we have enormous resources, you know, with taking care of thousands of people. And I'm sure that some sort of provisions can be made to get some of the basic necessities, certainly basic medical care, uh, food support, whatever, in, into people like this, they can't really uh, arrange it themselves. It's, you know, like, you know, it's getting the basic... Even this nonsense of not having an address, that's... I'm sorry. This is a place. This is a place. There, this is an address. I, even though it might not be recognized by the city, as far as I'm concerned, this is a spot of land on the waterfront of New York. There, this place should have an address. You know, in other words, this is this is a place, and every place has an address. Seems to me that that's didn't that seem like a natural right. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, and like you know, the homeless issue is one thing, but you know, you've spoken to John, you spoke to Janice, someone. These are people that don't need to be out here. They're not well, you know. 
John. Listen, if you need to, you can use my store as an address. You know, such and such care of Thank you. my store. Okay, so if you need it with some of these bureaucrats of social work, just let me know, so I, and I'll start a file there, and we'll... Because it's important, because, you know, it's going to be cold out here for these right. kids, you know. The community center, that's something the community center could do. They could supply uh, an address, you know what I mean? Or, or a, a center where people could get checks and mail, you know what I mean? That's the kind of thing I think the community center would be well. I'll certainly call them up and suggest it. My whole thing right now is that I cannot see them staying here and if I find a comfy place to go and live which I've been offered is to leave them out here these they're all like I said they're my kids they're children because they are younger than I am how old are you 34 and so anyway I gave Sylvia a shot she said mr. Wicker give me a chance to work at the store I bought these little dolls on sale for a dollar a piece. They were about that big in Taiwan or something. And I thought, gee, I could put gold string on those and turn them into Christmas ornaments and sell them for $10 a piece. And actually, I bought about 200 of them. And I needed someone to, to sew. And who would be better to sew $200 with this gold <laughs> string than Sylvia Rivera? So I said, I'll give her a shot at working because I certainly don't want to string these dolls. I don't know anyone else that would want to go through that either. And in the process of that, I found that if I got busy with a customer and she had gotten through whatever I'd given her to do, she would notice that a showcase was dirty, the floor needed sweeping, or she'd do something. In other words, she wouldn't stand there twiddling her thumbs and, and letting the clock run while I was busy working, waiting on this customer. That's a self-starting employee, and I can tell you, having had several hundred employees, well, I had a huge turnover at my button shop over five years, uh, including names I don't even remember. I'm sorry. Joe Pesci, I think, is one of the famous actors now. And um, I just, they, they give you this runaround that they don't tell you what they want. So yeah, I was counting on this money. I mean, it was 45 days, over 45 days. I was counting on monies, and now I have it. So, I don't know. But I am going to the COPA, thanks to Miss um, Allison, and, you know, because she's going to make sure that I, you know, she already had me put on a space anyway, but. Saying, I, I saw Allison last night. I, I know, because yeah. we, when, when she met you, uh -huh. we had left each other. Yeah, she said that. So she's telling me, you know, she's thinking of putting me on her staff part-time, okay. you know, for a little, you know, answering the phones and doing a little paperwork. And then, off the camera, Randy. <laughs> if Randy teaches me how to make these holders on his store, I can do a couple of days work over there. Because I do like to work. I, I, you know, because it helps me in my head. So anyway, uh, there are very few self-starters. Self there are very few hard workers. And most people are honest, but you know, you can't, can't trust them blindly all the time. But there's a real value. In, and Sylvia was totally honest. She was functional. And she was a hard worker. So for a while, she worked off the books. And then she used to come by occasionally. She never asked for money. I always expected she'd touch me up for money. I know Bob Kohler gave her money. But Bob Kohler wouldn't give her work. I gave her work. 
And then I put her on off the books for a while because I had a lot of people that were working with ACT UP. I had so many people off the books at that store. I was taking, giving people discounts to get cash sales so I could pay my off the book staff. And that's one reason why I think I didn't make as much money as I could have made because I said to my accountants, I said, I have these people and they're working night and day with ACT UP. I said they really need the support and they can't they can't work on the books and get SSI and the medical coverage they need. Yeah. I remember the accountant saying to me, Well if I was gonna steal, I'd steal for myself, not for other people. But anyway, I managed to get away with it. And then Sylvia decided she would go on the books because they put one point they put Sylvia on welfare. And for welfare you had to go in and work. Mm-hmm. One day she showed up for work. You know those big green dumpsters, like the one I have behind the building? That, that They had a dumpster at City Hall that was at the bottom of some incline or something, but Sylvia Rivera was the only one that showed up for work. And she was left to try to push this dumpster up this hill or something. There were supposed to be six people that showed up, but she was the only one that showed up. But anyway, so Sylvia said welfare was not worth all the trouble. So I put her on the books for six months. Now, at the, beginning, at the beginning, my rate for unemployment was the lowest possible. It was like one-half of one percent or three-tenths of one percent of my payroll or something. So she had worked for six months. Then I'd let her collect unemployment for six months. And by the time that routine was over about three or four times, about three times anyway, my unemployment insurance had risen to 10% of my payroll. That's more than Medicare and Social Security put together. So anyone that I put on my books, right off the books, if I was paying right off the bat, if I was paying them ten dollars, they were costing me twelve because I had seventeen percent extra yeah. in unemployment. When I finally closed the business, I still had a minus ten thousand dollar balance in my unemployment account, which I was delighted by. I didn't have to but I had to pay all those high payroll taxes towards the end. After the interview on the PR 96, we became very good friends because then she came here and started working stringing Christmas ornaments and was just incredible. You know, I, I said to myself, I said, she wants to work at the store. This queen is going to last three hours a day, you know, two days at the most. Please, no, you know, but, oh, I'll give her a shot. You know what I mean? Like, it was just enough where I said, oh, I'll give her, you know, I'll give anybody a try. You know what I mean? And then in my amazement, she turned out to be Incredible. They tell me, my computer man just told me a couple of weeks ago, I didn't know this at the time, but when I would really be getting on Sylvia's nerves, she'd become humming this tune. Yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. That's Randy in his lamp shop in a video added to the Peer interview after Sylvia's death in 2002. In a follow-up interview on the Peers, Sylvia explains to Randy why she stayed there for so long. Because most of the kids here were alcoholics and people with AIDS. And that's one of the reasons that I like I stayed on for as long as I did until we got thrown out because there were people here that really needed help and the community was not here to help them. As AIDS continued to decimate the gay and trans homeless community, the city closed down the piers for renovation, displacing Sylvia and her family. Did uh did Sylvia end up living here too? Oh yes, when they closed the pier, mm. I took her in, and she slept, there was a reclining chair right over, right about where you're sitting, a little bit back, and she actually slept in that reclining chair for about five or six months, 
And then they had an opening at Cooney. I think it was the opening of the Cooney uh, at NYU. And I got up there and gave a speech, which people almost gasped upon hearing. I got up and gave this big Maycopa speech. My name is Randy Wicker, and I want to here at Cooney apologize to Sylvia Rivera for having maligned her and with great venom called her Mr. Sylvia Rivera a news story I wrote in the early 1970s which caused us to be enemies for 20 years. And people came over, several people came over and said to me, I can't believe that you gave that speech you just gave. You know, we've become so mainstream and whatnot lately, you know, and everything is business, business, and that's the way I look at it. It's not, like in the beginning, you know, we fought for a lot of different things, and even our little, you know, the GLF Community Center was the first one. Well, you started and with stars, yeah, street yeah, trans yeah. fats, act, you and Marsh, you took built a holding for holding. Right. And we and we did our thing without the help of the community once again. You know, this is what I refer to all the time is the things that Marsha and I did by the both of us hustling the damn streets to help own without the help of the community, because the community did not help us at all. You know, that's what community is, is caring for other people. And that's what we're supposed to do. And this is why, when I, when I... You're the sister that feeds her. This is our community. Fantastic endorsement of you. This is our community, this is our little house. I know now if I ever get hungry that, that Sister Sylvia will take care of me. Honey, I will come I you know, she's good people, eat. she's good people, and she'll take care of, of, of those that need it. Right? I've been doing it for years. Right. I, you know, in Yonkers, I was named Ma yeah. Sylvia by all the queens that lived in my area. I took them in. Oh, we don't want to get that Ma stuff. Let's dye the hair. We'll be Sister Sylvia. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a break. I need people say, uh, people have accused me at times of being two things, uh, both of which I don't know what to say. First is that I'm overly generous to the undeserving because I'm too quick to believe people's stories or to give them money or to trust them because I've been ripped off a number of times, giving people even a second chance, they've ripped me off again. And the other is that another person called me a collector of cripples, which is a funny term. But you know, I say to myself, look at the cripples that I've collected in my life. Yes, I've, I've had some losers, I have been, I've been ripped off, but when I'm taken in the big picture, among the cripples I, I've taken in, so to speak, cripples, for Marsha P. Johnson, my son Willie, uh, Sylvia Rivera, who used to be arch enemies. We became best friends the last years of her life after being enemies for 20 years. Randy Wicker is still very active in the movement. He and Michael show up for the parades and marches. Randy put on his COVID mask and marched for Black Lives this summer, wearing a t-shirt reading Black Trans Lives Matter. And now I tell people now he's just my pusher. I mean, I don't look afraid, I mean. But the fact is, he pushes my wheelchair. Oh. I have two wheelchairs, the one he's sitting in. Mm. And it's very luxurious, because what I found is that I wasn't up to marching from 38th Street all the way down to Christopher Street yeah, one time. So having them push my chair. Temperature. Yeah. So by having them have a chair to sit in before the march starts, and then have them push me in the chair, 
I'll sit in the chair and then I see something I want to photograph or, or, or videotape, I'll hop out of the chair and shoot a yeah. short video or a yeah. photograph of. He spent his life marching, educating others, educating himself. I'd, I'd spell it out. I'd say T-H-I-N-K. And this program has been a breakthrough in this regard. I think the fact that WBAI is here tonight taping this program is the first T. I want to look forward to seeing the H-I-N-K in, in all phases of society, and especially among the thinking community in this generation, and maybe in the whole community in a generation or two. We could and did talk all day. Michael, what is the name on Netflix series about trans... The one about the trans, the, the black, the, the family, the voguing families? Oh, Pose. Pose, right. Pose, yes. Right. It was just like the story on Pose. Remember the woman that runs That's the house? the Mattachine Court Jester. Oh, what are you? Wow, wonderful. Give me a couple. And, uh, oh, yeah, I have more buttons and also okay. Court Jester and Belitis and the woman from Transvestia. Oh. Trans Magazine. Transvestia? Yeah. Uh, uh, Virginia Prince. I used to subscribe to hers, and I, I lost the One of the most impressive people I've ever met, Jim Kepner, mm-hmm. after the march with Harry Hay. Mm. Story, yeah, that is a good story. That is a very funny story. Yeah. Don't ever forget that story. <laughs> and as if we were coming full circle on his story, he got a call inviting him to an exhibit on queer sex work at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art. So that's where we ended our day. Well, I'd sum it up in a phrase, I think, just live and let live. Michael? What? I'm going to the Wrestling Omen tonight. Thanks to Randy Wicker for so much of his time. I'll forever be grateful for the experience of getting to know him and for the work he did for gay liberation. You can hear more from his 1962 radio special, Live and Let Live, in Season 2, Episode 11 of this podcast, or hear the full unedited version on my Patreon at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can see Randy's full interview with Sylvia Rivera on The Piers on YouTube or Vimeo. You can also watch the documentary about Marsha P. Johnson, Pay It No Mind, on YouTube. You can hear Randy's full 1966 interview with St. Philomena on my website at queerserial.com slash wicker. And check out Randy's fabulous photo archive on Flickr. There are links to all of these in the episode notes. Follow me on Instagram at Queer Serial for tons of images from the history throughout the podcast, and check out my Patreon for tons of bonus episodes and deep dives into topics from the podcast, complete with images from my research. You can also get the podcast buttons, mugs, and even a great book published by the Mattachine Gay Bar by Helen Branson to support the podcast. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. I'm Devlin Camp. Thank you so much for listening. 